Welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. I'm Brian Wilson from Dallas, Texas. I'm Lise Van Boxel in Santa Fe, New Mexico at St. John's College. And I'm Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Today we are doing Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, Jeff has an upcoming lecture March 2nd in Annapolis. Um, so if you're looking for a rockin' Friday night, you can swing by uh, to the lecture series. And he's also working on a book called Machiavelli's Children on Human Enhancement. So Jeff is going to start us off with a little bit of a summary of the book, and then Lise is going to start us off with an opening question. Thanks, Brian. So uh, our listeners probably all know that Frankenstein is the story of a young man who makes a monster. Uh, it's the story of Victor Frankenstein, who's a Genevan, 19 years old. Uh, he passes an idyllic childhood, although he has a very strangely constituted family. And he's interested in what they called natural philosophy, uh, which we would call more or less science today, and in particular, chemistry. Uh, right when he's about to go to university, uh, his mother dies, and he becomes very interested in rendering the human frame immune from disease. And so he pursues chemistry, and then he pursues anatomy and physiology, and eventually he discovers the secret of animating dead matter. And he decides that he's going to use this secret to animate uh, a being that looks very much like himself. And the being, uh, we've come to know the being as Frankenstein's monster, and sometimes we even call it Frankenstein. Now, the problem is, once he animates this being, he takes one look at it, and it is so ugly that he essentially flees. And having fled his monster, uh, a number of events occur, but they end in the monster um, murdering a member of Frankenstein's family. And confronting the monster about this murder, the Frankenstein learns about his past and is uh, given a demand by the monster who has learned to speak in the interim. The monster wants Frankenstein to make him a mate, a female monster. Uh, to make a long story short, Frankenstein thinks this over for a while. He starts on the female monster and eventually he decides against it. Uh, he tears his second creation to shreds. The monster observes him doing this and vows eternal hatred and revenge on Frankenstein. And he begins to kill others of Frankenstein's family, including Frankenstein's uh, own bride, uh, Elizabeth Lavenza. And uh, the novel ends, it's, it's all set in a frame story involving an explorer heading to the North Pole who runs into both the monster and Frankenstein himself. And here's Frankenstein's story. And the monster ends with Frankenstein dying, and uh, the last we see of the monster is uh, he claims to be headed to the North Pole, where he's going to immolate himself on a funeral pyre. So uh, with that highly inadequate summary of a very interesting and complicated work, I turn it over to you, Lise, for our question. Thanks, Jeff. I'm going to um, immediately invite you to talk a little bit more about some of the content, but I'm struck by this. Um, a large part of the book occurs after that first murder, as you said. Um, then the monster starts to recount his life to Frankenstein, which is punctuated, according to the monster, by repeated efforts to try have some sort of uh, companionship, human sympathy, um, intimacy with another with another being, and he's repeatedly rejected. And it looks. Um, well, the, the proximate reason given is typically that he's hideously ugly to human beings. 
And so I'm interested in what the importance of the physical ugliness is, because, for example, it, it raises in my mind the question of if Frankenstein had managed to make a beautiful creature, would would we have the same story, or or would that be fine? Why is ugliness so central? Yeah, I like this question. It's a question that's been a lot on my mind, and I can think of a couple ways that we can go with it. We can go backwards, right? In other words, we can go from the moment that the monster is created, uh, and that's when his ugliness really registers on Frankenstein. We can go backward from there into Frankenstein's past um, as one kind of answer. And the other kind of answer is we could go forward and see exactly what goes wrong for the monster and what the consequences of his ugliness are. So you, Lisa, or you, Brian, does either of you have a preference for which way we start? Ooh, that's a tough (laughs) one. Let's just, I'll I'll flip a coin here and just go, let's go back to the past. Why does he create him potentially ugly? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that uh, that Shelley mentions about Victor Frankenstein is that he tried to make the monster beautiful. Um, and it looks like he tried and he failed. And his failure is interesting because some of the parts of the monster that he makes are actually on their own quite beautiful. It looks like, uh, for example, the monster's hair is beautiful and the monster's teeth are beautiful. But uh, other parts are ugly on their own, and the combination of the whole thing, especially when uh, it moves by itself, is said by Frankenstein to be hideously ugly. So one of the possibilities I was trying to think about is whether um, Frankenstein tries and fails to make the monster beautiful because of something in his past education. And one of the things that occurred to me is that maybe... Uh, Victor Frankenstein's own education is monstrous in some way, and that monstrosity is reflected in the ugliness of uh, his product. Now, does that make some sense? It does, actually. Uh, Before we were talking today, I was just reviewing to see what his past was, and um, this is what struck me, although you guys helped me out of what struck you guys, but uh, Shelley goes to some length to indicate that uh, Frankenstein's not very interested in in poetry, in tales of chivalry, in politics, in government, in languages, those things by which we might communicate with each other and particularly communicate things like sentiment or the importance of human affection. He's just not interested. He wants the, the, uh, a very narrow understanding of science. And so um, I don't know that that tells us why he wanted that thing, but that's certainly the choice he makes in his education. And he also, yeah, that seems. Oh, oh go ahead, and, Brian. And he also, I mean, he takes a very hipster approach to science too, right? He he takes a <laughs> a rebellious approach. You know, it's he's infatuated with I think Agrippa is Agrippa the author that he's just kind of infatuated with. Yeah, Cornelius Agrippa. That's and, right. You know, he mentions this to one of his professors, and the professor kind of mocks him, and that actually spurs him on to dig even deeper into Agrippa because this kind of pretentious authority figure says, "Oh, you're you're wasting your time with this stuff," and that just spurs him on to follow it even more deeply, right? And with his initial professor, um, so I, I guess I'm wondering, like, how much um, does that? like authority figure play into uh you know him wanting to do something counter to that and maybe the creation itself is revolting against kind of natural sciences as the world knows it 
Yeah, I think that that's right, that the two of you have just outlined what I might call the negative and the positive reasons why Frankenstein is the way he is when he sets out to make the monster, right? So he has, um, even though he's apparently familiar with works of literature, and so he'll refer to Paradise Lost or he'll refer to Dante from time to time, he's not really moved by them very much, and he doesn't make them his study, uh, at least not as much as, as he makes natural science. And then, Brian, you're absolutely right that he's interested in Cornelius Agrippa, who's an alchemist, um, a magician, a writer of magical or occult texts, um, as well as Paracelsus and, uh, and other writers of that sort. Um, but yeah, he, he repeatedly encounters um, people who denigrate that study in his life, and he also has some acquaintance with the experimental side of modern science. Right? So he gets to see electricity, the air pump, uh, various things like that. And so he has a kind of monstrous combination, if I can put it this way. Um, uh, maybe I'm not quite sure how to describe the proportions, but um, an attachment to this ancient science of alchemy, coupled with some experience with uh, the effects of modern science, and both of those things are particularly overgrown compared to his inclination towards uh, humanistic subjects. I'm still not. How does that make the monster ugly, though? I mean, is it is it the yeah, fusion? Yeah. Is it the fusion of alchemy and kind of a modern scientific method that you know can't survive uh, together? Is that the kind of genesis of an ugly form when you try to combine those two? Yeah, I think so. Um, let's push this a little bit further. You can see whether uh, this makes any sense to you or whether you agree with it as an interpretation. Um, the, the main thing in the alchemical teaching is the teaching that, that uh, materials have occult properties, right? So um, metals like lead can be turned into gold or eternal life is possible. Um, in other words, the, the teaching of alchemy or maybe magic more generally is the way a thing looks doesn't really tell you very much about what it is, that it could actually be fundamentally the exact opposite of how it looks, right? The properties it has are hidden. Um, now, the modern science uh, contributes, I think, to uh, Frankenstein's education that um, uh, he should be able to achieve great effects, Right? So his experimental science should be able to make great changes in the world. And uh, on the one hand, alchemy contributes a real desire on his part for secret knowledge that nobody else possesses and for solitary labor. And then the modern part uh, conveys to him a desire to um, have something that he'll be praised for or glorified for, an achievement that everybody can appreciate. And so when you put those things together, I think it's something like this. He really believes that he can take dead matter from human beings and also, I think, from animals and fashion them into something that will be beautiful when it's done because the fact that the materials themselves are ugly, and he stresses all the time how disgusting his labors are, that does not mean for him that the final product will be ugly. Right? In other words, he has this alchemical belief that there'll be a kind of transformation when he puts everything together. Now, how does that strike you? Does that seem like an intelligible reason? Yeah, and it, I mean, it, it also jives with the philosophical, you know, the, the ends justify the means, right? That we don't have to build a holistic model um, 
where everything is kind of harmonized along the way if at the end, you know, you've created something beautiful. But I think that, you know, at least in this case, it shows to a certain degree that you can't do that, right? That if you try to, if you try to make a conglomeration of things that do not fit together, then the, the sum will not be greater than the parts. And in this case, it will be potentially less than or at least inharmonious. Yeah, yeah, somehow constrained or limited by the parts. I think that's right. The material dictates a certain form, and he doesn't want to accept that. I wonder what this means exactly. And let me flush out what I mean by that question. Um, I take it that Shelley's offering a critique not just of a particular person, but of this scientific approach. And so what, what is the problem she's exposing? So means to end could be, end justifies the means, could be one of it. Um, but I'm also struck by a question Brian raised before the pod when we were just sort of chatting. And he said uh, he was interested in whether or not Frankenstein actually existed or whether, uh, sorry, the monster, or whether it was Frankenstein. And I'm now seeing um, how that question might be related to what we're doing here in, in this way. See if this makes sense. Frankenstein has something like the modern view of I'm going to torture nature. Nature is available. There's no sense of the divinity of nature, which might be more um, represented in poetry and things he doesn't really that don't interest him. Um, But of course, well, I wonder whether Shelley is suggesting he himself is a natural being, and so to torture nature or to even have the impulse to want to torture nature, as Shelley understands it, is to ruin yourself, in which case the monster would be, if, if I don't know if I want to go so far as to say it might not exist, although that might be the case, but at the very least a kind of mirror for his internal mm-hmm. psyche. Does that seem mm-hmm. fair? Yeah, I think, I think that that's entirely right. So um, one of the things that Shelley stresses in the case of Victor Frankenstein's education is... Um, the role played by solitary reading. And uh, of those two things, uh, solitary is as important as reading. Uh, If it weren't for his uh, kind of hidden attachment to the books that he reads and in the order that he reads uh, reads them, then he wouldn't have ended up with uh, patchwork um, science, including this um, belief that torturing nature is a good idea that he ends up with. So uh, he has a kind of natural um, liking for family life. He has has a kind of natural attachment to uh, external nature in the sense of um, beautiful and sublime natural um, landscapes and things like that. And uh, Shelley makes it very clear that his anatomical projects take him away from all those things. They take him away from his family and they take him away from the outdoors. And in being taken away from those things that he takes real pleasure from and, and believes to be good, um, he loses a kind of rootedness and becomes vulnerable to accidents like the accidents that put him on the path that he ends up being on. It, it's, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Lisa. Well, just, I, I had another sort of question, Brian, so, so it was sort of folded into this, so you should go ahead if you want to build on what Jeff just Well, said. I, just, I was just going to say, you know, I, I think there are a lot of tremendous parallels that we can tease out um, between Frankenstein and the monster. But I think that one thing that stands out to me is, um, you know, Frankenstein, I think secludes himself from society a great deal. 
you know, mm-hmm. and puts off his marriage to Elizabeth um, for yeah. an extended period of time, right? And when I think it's is it it's after William's murder, and then uh, Julia's murder that he you know mm-hmm. retires the Alps and kind of bumps into the monster. It's like, oh hey, what's up? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know that that is your response after losing. Um, you know, a brother and then a, a close family friend, and then also her being executed mm-hmm. for murder is rather than um, kind of be warmed in the bosom of your family, you go, oh, I'm going to go up mm-hmm. in the Alps. Um, mm-hmm. And there's there's a solitude there that is self-imposed and an interest in, you know, and a purpose in kind of observing and being closer to the non-human natural world. Now, in mm-hmm. the case of the monster, the monster is I, I don't I don't remember him ever, you know, standing back and going, Oh, the Alps are cool, you know, mm-hmm. or you know, being into learning in any for any purpose other than to get closer to humanity, you know. And so, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, we have that long um exposition from the monster about living in the in the hovel you know, and, and listening closely and peeking through the slats and trying to, you know, understand the words of these humans and then throwing himself at the feet of the, the blind man and trying to be welcomed. Um, and then there's, there's a part at the end end of the book, uh, that, you know, the monster is, um, talking about for, for while I destroyed his hopes, I did not satisfy my own desires. They were forever ardent and craving. Still, I desired love and fellowship and I was still spurned. So mm-hmm. Frankenstein has offered these things. He's offered love, you know, through Elizabeth. He's off- offered fellowship um, from his family, but he kind of rejects all of those for his quest, right? His quest mm-hmm. to create, um, you know, what turned out to be a monster. And his creation is not really interested in science or um, the natural world, you know, it, it mainly interested in humanity and love. And so I'm yeah, wondering yeah, what yeah. to make of those kind of two uh, differing, you know, passions. Can I just add a, yeah. de- a detail? Oh, go, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Just a detail in, what, in Brian's account. It might be helpful for the question. Um, he, the, the monster, and of course that term is even a bit, it, it tends to incline us against the, we will just call him the creature. Uh, the mm-hmm. the creature learns English by listening to a family uh, reading the Bible and Milton, notably Milton's Paradise Lost. Right, so obviously Shelley's invoking that. But um, on the one hand, to pick up on Brian's point, the monster, yes, he's trying to have human human communication, but he also learns about that through a book that's deeply about moral behavior, and then another one that's also mm-hmm. beautiful about human interaction. And so he is mm-hmm. he is like an Adam where the God did not create an Eve, right? So so that's the right. that's the parallel. So um, into the mix, we should throw the possibility that. It's not. It's not clear to me that the monster is a is a fiend or is a is an evil creature. Which is, again, to go back to the opening question, what everybody always assumes because he's ugly. Yeah. 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 It's it's remarkable how quickly uh, Victor himself draws the line from the monster's ugliness to his being a, a despicable creature, right? A, a real uh, a fiend. Um, let me just put a, a couple things. There's something Brian said together with uh, something you just said, Lee. So um, the reading of the monster does include uh, Paradise Lost. And Paradise Lost seems to present two characters that uh, the monster identifies with. Uh, one is Adam, 
and the other is Satan. Yes. Um, and those look like the two paths that are available to the monster. You know, as long as uh, Frankenstein entertains the thought of building a female companion, then uh, the monster sees himself as uh, Adam without an Eve, right? Adam awaiting his Eve, mm. right? The creation who wasn't treated as well as God treated Adam. Um, as soon as it becomes clear that Victor is not going to make the monster, the monster sees himself as Satan, mm. right? And so the only path available to him then uh, is revenge against his creator, right? Satan's revenge against God. Mm -hmm. um, the monster does not, as far as I can tell, think at all about the story of the fall. And the monster, as Brian pointed out, I think rightly, does not think about himself becoming a scientist. Right? And those two things seem to me um, maybe connected and interesting. And I wondered if um, it was possible, and now we're looking at the ugliness of the monster kind of uh, heading into the future of his life rather than looking backwards, um, whether we thought the monster's um, self-understanding had been distorted by his readings and by his education. Right? In other words, is it true that the only things, the only possibilities for him are a mate or revenge. It sounds like, I, I don't know if this is what you have in mind, Jeff, but I, I was struck by this, and you remind me of it in your comment. The monster's clearly very intelligent, maybe, maybe more intelligent than Frankenstein. Why doesn't he just make a monster for himself or a, right. a mate? Is that what you're wondering? Yeah. That's, that's part of it. And here's another detail. Uh, the monster claims that he's going to die by immolating himself at the North Pole. Mm. The North Pole is the goal of the explorer Walton, who's in the frame story, and Walton has to turn back because his men mutiny. Um, in other words, the monster is a better explorer than Walton is. Yeah. He reaches Walton's goal, right? He could be, um, because of his great physical stamina and strength, he could be a much better explorer than human beings could if he were willing to tolerate the solitude of that, which which Walton is willing to tolerate, mm. right? So it seems to me that there's a path um, left unaddressed, but kind of conspicuously unaddressed for the monster. Give up on revenge, give up on the hopes of a family or a mate, and dedicate yourself to knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so this, well, there's there's a line that um, Frankenstein uses when he's talking to to was it Dalton or Walton? Dalton. Walton. 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 Um, he, he says, none but those who have experienced them can conceive of the enticements of science. You know, mm -hmm. that this is, it's the, it's the fruit of the tree of knowledge, right? But it's not something that the creature is seemingly interested in, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think then what's missing there, if, if these are parallels, is the Eve, right? Because the, the, mm -hmm. the quest for knowledge is secondary to the quest for um, an Eve, uh, at least in the, in the biblical sense and in, in the monster sense. But, you know, that's there for Victor, right? It's, it's you know, Victor mm -hmm. has an Eve, um, you know, someone who, he's, who he loves dearly, who he communicates with, you know, frequently, um, who it's assumed, you know, will you know, become his wife and he rejects that. So that, I guess I'm asking something like what is there, is that the unnatural piece of the creature is, is the lack of, 
interest in that knowledge, the lack of interest in knowledge. And, and is it because he doesn't have a mate? But if so, then what's wrong with Frankenstein? What's wrong with Victor? Yeah, yeah, this is very puzzling to me. So we might be inclined to connect somebody being erotic, right, and attached to, say, the opposite sex, or at least to a beloved of some sex, with them being interested, uh, longing for knowledge, let's say. Um, and both in Frankenstein and in the, the monster's case, that connection is, is very odd. Um, one of the things that strikes me about Frankenstein is just how apparently unerotic his attachment to uh, Elizabeth Lavenza, his intended, is. Uh, she um, is raised as if she were his sister. She is, in fact, his cousin, but uh, his family, his mother in, in chief, intends him to marry her. And that's a little odd. It's so odd that uh, Frankenstein's father says, uh, when Frankenstein's been putting off the marriage because of the monster's interference, is it because you think of Elizabeth as your sister and so you're not attracted to her? Is that the problem? So there's, there's something odd about Frankenstein's own sexuality. And then on the monster's side, um, I can't tell whether Frankenstein intended the monster to breed with human females or only with um, females of his own kind. Uh, Frankenstein does say right at the beginning when he's making the monster that um, a new species will bless him as their creator. And that looks like it's prior to his entertaining the thought of making a female monster. Mm, that's interesting. And so it seems to me possible that he thought that this species would interbreed with humans. And he doesn't need to do anything new to the monster to make him capable of breeding. There's, a, there's another... Right? Well, there's another possibility, Jeff, that when you describe the Elizabeth, the oddness of that family relationship, I'm reminded of Oedipus. Um, mm -hmm you know, uh, sleeping, sleeping with your mother, killing your father. And the way I have understood that is um, it's the desire for one not to have an origin or to, or to be one's own origin, one's own God in a way. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder whether Shelley is doing that, something like that with Elizabeth, that is that this woman, was the mother, um, Frankenstein's mother dies, sort of Elizabeth sort of replaces her too. So the Elizabeth becomes sort of every possible female relation to him. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I think maybe slightly Oedipal. So I wonder whether or not when he creates the creature, since he is sort of unerotic and since there is what looks like an Oedipal thread, whether it really occurs, the, the mechanics of breeding really occurs to him or whether he kind of thinks, mm -hmm. you know, Frankenstein... Um, uh, is the product of that Oedipal urge to be one's own origin and one's own God. And that's the thing, going back to Brian's question, that the monster won't do. He won't, he, For uh, we could delve further into the reason why, but he, he won't just become the creator of his own species in that very direct way. It's like he needs to have so a, a God-like figure above him, even when he knows that God is actually inferior to him. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it's interesting that, and this, this probably goes together, first, um, Elizabeth Lavenza is kind of indirectly responsible for Frankenstein's mother's death, right? She's, uh, yes. She has a bout of scarlet fever when she's, I guess, about 15, uh, and uh, Frankenstein's mother um, nurses her mm -hmm. prematurely before she's no longer infectious and dies as a result. Mm -hmm. She gets the scarlet fever and dies. Um, and when you look at it, Frankenstein's whole family is constituted by death in a very explicit way. Mm -hmm. um, but Shelley might think that 
all families are constituted by death. Um, maybe even that, that families as such um, are kind of um, images of the prospect of death. Mm -hmm. And that if uh, you want to get rid of death from the human frame, which is Frankenstein's explicit goal, you might not know it, but you're actually um, trying to replace the family, right, with something like self-creation or, or independent self-generation. Would you go, see if you'll, if this is to say the same thing, if she thinks that if you want to get rid of death, you actually are also getting rid of um, generative life. Yeah. Well, that might explain. Get, that might explain the you know Victor's lack of interest in sex, right? If he can mm -hmm. if he can create new life without sex, um, then that fulfills that drive to a certain extent, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess my only hesitation about that, and that that does make a lot a lot of sense, right? I mean, he is not Victor is not concerned with children, as far as I can tell, at all. Mm. Right, yes. uh, his uh, scientific quest is going to be um, the basis for his immortality, such as it is. Right, um, but the thing that makes me hesitate is that he does make the monster, as far as we can tell, capable of reproduction. Right, or at least both he and the monster behave as if the monster were capable of reproduction. Mm -hmm. And I would expect it to be more explicit that he might have tried to remove that possibility. Um, if he were interested in some other mode of generation, right? Uh, sexual reproduction in particular, mm. right? A female mm. monster. Yeah, I guess, I guess as you, as you say, um, when he says he's going to make a new species, but oddly at that point hasn't spoken about making a female, it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like he really hasn't thought much about how reproduction occurs, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Birds and bees were not his specialty. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> He's a bit of a cold fish that way. And so, yeah, yeah I agree with you. He doesn't, I mean, to, to not have the sexual organs on the monster would also at least to be thoughtful about what it is you were doing. But I take it that he really isn't in that regard. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so there, there are a couple more details that I wanted to um, ask you guys, uh, guys about and see what you thought. And uh, one of them we've kind of touched on briefly, but it really was striking to me the more I thought about it. Um, at the end of his life, uh, in fact, his last words, um, Frankenstein does not say that uh, he would do it differently. He says he doesn't regret um, what he did. And in fact, somebody else might succeed where he failed. And it looks to me like the lesson Walton takes from the whole story, which he's gotten from Frankenstein, including some papers, apparently, that Frankenstein had with him, um, is, is not that uh, he should um, not pursue science further or should stay in the circle of family life, right? He would have continued to the North Pole has, had his men not mutinied. Right. And so that's um, really striking to me in light of the general tendency of the story, which seems to be this cautionary tale, and it's so often taken as a cautionary tale. So what, what do the two of you think about that? Do you think that Shelley's final view is that the jury is still out on whether this kind of solitary um, pursuit of monstrous science is worth it or not? I guess, I guess that's where I wonder... Yeah, I, I have a version of the same question. 
I'm hesitant to call the monster monsters, as I said earlier on, because um, when you read through the story, it's not clear to me that the monster isn't, in fact, the, the being with the most beautiful soul. So he's right. physically ugly, and we've discussed that. But um, it looks like a human shortcoming, or at least that's one possibility, that they're unable to get over his physical ugliness. Um, and Frankenstein, um, I mean, he is potentially blamable for having created this entity, this sentient being, and then because he's ugly, running out of the room and leaving it on its own to try survive. And that's the monster's claim. It's an injustice. Um, yeah. And Frankenstein seems to want to say, no, no, you're just like this. You're wicked. And the monster keeps saying, no, no, I'm like this because I'm unloved and I'm repeatedly rejected and it's unbearable. Mm-hmm. So if we're to take away, and of course it could be complex, could be doesn't have to be black and white in this regard, but if we're to take away from the book um, the impression that no, actually, the creature is better than the human beings, but human beings are just so overcome by the physical appearance of this entity that, that they're cruel to it. Then I, mm-hmm. I don't know that the science is necessarily ruled out if human beings could be better in their responses and their responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, the, and there's something in kind of the, the, the human nature piece of you know why, why there's a there's a great Robin Williams bit from years ago it's like you know babies are really annoying right they're just <laughs> loud and they just <laughs> poop everywhere and you have to take care of them constantly and it's like why why don't we just like chuck them out the door and it's like cuz they're so cute right <laughs> like, <laughs> and so you know frankenstein has uh, gone in the completely opposite direction right he's made this gargantuan you know larger than normal human being um, you know, creature. Uh, he's made it, uh, you know, adult age, even though apparently it ages, I guess, cause it can die, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so there, there's something in kind of the rebelliousness of the creation, uh, against kind of human nature in making it gargantuan and making it, you know, a fully grown adult. So you don't have that compassion towards it. That's, that's witnessed from, you know, Frankenstein himself when it, when he, when he gives it life. Um, you know, he's not, he's not perturbed by the creature before it's given life. You know, he's not perturbed mm-hmm. when he's, when he's, you know, attempting to make the mate and he talks about, you know, cleaning it up and, and taking it out of the laboratory. And it's just these grotesque pieces, you know, he's not, he's not, put off by this at all so it's the idea of you know something something ugly um you know created and 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 having that spark of life in a fully grown adult right and so i guess what's Mm -hmm. what's the instinct there kind of coming back more to the original question that we're talking about now i guess but what what can we say about human instinct that you know even its creator is frightened and grossed out by you know the creature once it's given life. Yeah. Well, here's let me try a formula. This is maybe the most stark and also most general way I could put it. And this might be a, a way of kind of um, offering a possible final judgment on the ugliness question. Um, this um, constellation of things that seem to go together for Frankenstein and for the monster. Um, it's something like uh, beautiful things, external nature, family, 
and uh, what is good, that the association of those four things, the novel might be saying, is a prejudice and does not um, match the truth. And the truth is that beautiful things come out of ugly things, and the family is constituted by death, and so is life. Uh, maybe uh, the good is even constituted by some things we would call bad. And that uh, it is a possibility that we could live um, in confrontation with that rather than taking refuge in this kind of comfortable sense that um, we can turn away from all the ugly things and only keep the good and beautiful things together. Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of that is that, you know, life and arguably the good and the beautiful like require women, right? Yeah, and there's yeah. there's a distance throughout the story of the kind of three main characters in, in Walton and Frankenstein and the creature where women are kept at a distance. You know, in Frankenstein's case because of his ugliness, or in, in the creature's case because of its ugliness. In Frankenstein's case, just because of his um, kind of his the enticements of science have kind of led him in a certain direction, and also the parallels with Walton of you know, and he and he makes a, a point of this at some point where he's writing his sister. And says, you know, you, you've been consoled by the fact that you are married and you have children. You know, this, mm-hmm. this can bring you happiness, implying that because he doesn't have that, he has to find happiness somewhere else. And that's in basically tempting death, right, by mm-hmm. going to the North Pole. And not only tempting his own death, but the death of his crew as well. And so mm-hmm. there's something in this uh, story in the relation of the sexes and, you know, the creature having some kind of instinct towards the, the good and the beautiful um, and, and life in, in wanting to be closer to women. And, but Frankenstein and, and Walton both you know, rejecting that. Mm-hmm. I might have just let us down a, a dead end because I don't have a question to finish that up. No, no, no. But I, but I, think, I think the way you put it is good. And it might, um, that might indicate uh, a limitation of the creature uh, not through any of his own fault, but a limitation of the creature when compared with Frankenstein or with Walton or with Shelley herself that we otherwise might not see. Because I think Lisa's right that um, the kind of second position one takes when one thinks about it is really the creature is the best of, of all of them. Um, well, that's certainly true. And this is, this is why I was kind of joking with Lisa before we started recording about does the creature exist? Because... He is really good at a lot of stuff for having like <laughs> most, you know, spent most of his existence uh, before he starts taking action in a pigsty, uh, uh-huh. you know, listening to Milton and the Bible. He somehow knows how to sneak on and off ships. He knows how to like survive in the wilderness. He knows how yeah. to like, um, you know, he just knows how to do a lot of stuff. And then it's mm-hmm. also very interesting because Victor kind of figures this out too. You know, this kind of like Nancy boy from Geneva who spent all of his, you know, uh, upbringing reading about alchemy now knows how to like harness sled dogs and, um, you know, survive in the in the wilderness from from Tartary all the way to the North Pole. And so I'm just like, does this make sense? And so, you know, the only other person in the story that sees the monster is Walton. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's no record of anyone mentioning like, hey, I saw this big dude. Um, you know, and there's just these series of coincidences, you know, like in the murder of Claval, right? It's, mm-hmm. and there's this case made by the villagers in Ireland that it's like, well, if, 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 you know, because the, they arrest Frankenstein and they accuse him of the murder. Right. And it's like, well, if he did murder him and we have this northern wind and he tried to put off into it, 
he wouldn't have been able to, you know, sail into the wind. So he would have had to have returned. And so maybe he tacked all night trying to get all, get away. But at the end of the day, he just got pushed right back in the land. So it's him. And it's like, well, what are the chances that, you know, the murderer would murder Claval in some random part of Ireland? Why is Claval in <laughs> Ireland? You know, unless maybe Frankenstein's in Ireland. And... <laughs> Like then being able to do that and like ditch the body and get away in Ireland, like what is going on here? All right, Brian. So, so you've uh, you've introduced possible conspiracy theories, and I know it's it's Lisa's it's kind of, thing to drop the bombshell. Kind of my jam. Uh, but uh, but this time I wanna I wanna take a stab at the bombshell here. All right. So what do you Sounds guys dangerous. think of this? <laughs> Yeah, kaboom! In part two <laughs> um, of Frankenstein's podcast, turn in, do it next week. We'll, okay, we'll, we'll be back in we'll a moment. Um, so, how about this? Frankenstein and the monster are both Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And I knew that. Yeah, you knew that. <laughs> I didn't know that. And but the story. I, now, that, now that you've mentioned Rousseau, I'm like, of course, Jeff. Yeah, of course. Jeff's of course. <laughs> it's my fate. No, no, no. And and Shelley, uh, Mary Shelley, is preoccupied um, with the two faces of Rousseau. Rousseau is the um, the private th- thinker, the Genevan, and uh, Rousseau as the public face of the French Revolution, the monstrous revolution. Um, and uh, she's wondering how it could be that uh, a thinker like Rousseau could have yielded a monstrous revolution like what transpired. Um, so here's, when you start looking for these things, they're everywhere. Um, it's usually that way uh, with the monsters theories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know whether that's a good sign or not. Rousseau was uh, the on mon- the grassy knoll. <laughs> The, the trigger man. Yeah, so so look, um, uh, you know, so Victor Frankenstein is a Genevan. Um, mm. uh, he's uh, brought up uh, in ways that are similar to, to Jean-Jacques upbringing. The monster is raised somewhat like Emile is. Um, Shelley herself was very preoccupied with uh, Rousseau's claim that he abandoned five children to the foundling hospital. Mm-hmm. And there are five deaths before Frankenstein's in the novel. Um, and there are more things uh, that I could go on to point out, but that this gives a flavor of what I'm suspecting, that the story, in addition to being about what it's about, I don't want to, uh, uh, to take away at all from that account, but I think is also a kind of meditation on Rousseau's thought and an attempt to come to terms with it. That makes, you know, that's um, a plausible and obviously intriguing reading, and of course you spend a lot of time on Rousseau, let me let me ask for clarification then on on something we developed earlier on. So in the what you just offered, you suggested the French Revolution is is ugly. Um, I would have been inclined to say not just ugly, sort of on the surface, but deeply ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously you've thought about this. How do you reconcile that with what we were saying earlier, which is the the creature mm-hmm. seems arguably to be the most sensitive, beautiful entity in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it has to do with um, Shelley's um, deep ambivalence about the revolution, right? In other words, I think uh, she's committed to its ideals, but is concerned with its bloodiness. Um, one of the things that 
started me thinking along these lines was um, the murder of William in Plain Palais. Mm. Uh, the setting for that murder, the geographical location, is where uh, a statue of Jean-Jacques Rousseau is located. Mm. And Shelley, the two Shelleys, uh, Mary and her husband at the time, Percy uh, Shelley, um, talk about visiting this in their history of a six weeks tour. Mm -hmm. And so it looks to me like um, a way of working out her ambivalence about the revolution is a kind of working out of her ambivalence about the monster. Um, well, it's also, it's not a difficult stretch to, you know, look at the French Revolution or the nature of war in general in in its monstrous and noble um you know traits, right? That we mm -hmm. that we try to wrap this creation in nobility, um, no matter what the conflict is, but then by its very nature, it's monstrous, right? And it, mm -hmm. it is also, you know, in 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 your humble podcast host opinion, you know, contrary to human nature, right? Um, there there's part, but but there's part of it that seems to do it anyway, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of a wonderful book just to put a plug in of On Killing by Dave Grossman, who totally, mm. totally went off the deep end about like five or six years ago. So don't read anything that he wrote after that. But <laughs> On Killing is fascinating in that, you know, rattlesnakes wrestle and, mm -hmm. you know, goats slam their heads together and they've got like a three inch thick skull. And so most of these, um, you know, approaches to conflict don't end up with any significant harm, right? Uh, and that human beings, when they went to war, um, very rarely tried to kill each other. Um, you know, there's a SLA Marshall wrote a wonderful book um, called Soldiers Load and Biblioteca Nation that a lot of people have read, but also in some of his other studies, you know, he found that uh, somewhere between 10 and 15% of soldiers in the Civil War actually tried to kill the enemy. That, that mm. most most soldiers just shot up in the air or shot above you know the the opposing soldiers because they couldn't bring themselves to actually shoot another human being even when their life was in peril and it right. wasn't until um, you know after World War II where those numbers stayed consistent we're going off on a wild tangent here but it's combat and classic so you know <laughs> we'll, so make it, we'll make it somewhat thematic. Um, Get the combat in yeah. there. Uh, it wasn't until literally the introduction of the black silhouette at target practice mm. that you know uh, mankind became as lethal um, as it as as could be, at least from the infantry level, right? And also mm -hmm. standoff mm -hmm. weapons where you actually didn't see your enemy. And so it wasn't right. until the invention of these things that we conditioned infantry to actually be uh, effective at killing fellow human beings or technological innovations that allowed us to not even see the enemy that we started being able to kill each other uh, at the scale that that we've done in the 20th century so there's there's some parallels there with you know noble pursuits um, you know in trying to I don't know um, understand nature um but the ignoble pursuits um when it's you know trying to create something um that that doesn't really jibe with nature right that doesn't that's mm -hmm. not organic in nature that you get mm -hmm. that you get something monstrous when you when you attempt this mm. I, i'd have to think i haven't read that book but the iliad does come to mind as a pretty gory book where there's a lot of close hand killing 
But if I try to bring in the classics part, so back into the into the combat part, I, I guess what I'm wondering now, in light of your thesis, Jeff, is about the education again of Frankenstein slash Rousseau or part of Rousseau. Um, there's an emphasis on these ancient, more more ancient thinkers, and then the modern science, which I guess we could we we have spoken of as though it at least involves or doesn't um, say no to the notion of torturing nature. Shelley mm-hmm. makes Shelley makes the observation that um, I think it's uh, that Frankenstein is sort of he's odd in so far as he has the enthusiasm to learn as a student, but there's something sort of unrooted or childlike about him. So I take it right. um, that applies to Rousseau and also the French Revolution, because n- no education in politics, for instance, or no interest. Right. So uh, uh, I, I haven't pursued that line very much, but I, I will say that um, in Shelley's journal, the two books that she and uh, Percy read and reread during the time that she was composing Frankenstein are Emile and the Confessions. Uh-huh. And so, yes, there's some of Rousseau's autobiography in there, and I think part of her diagnosis is a kind of naivete, mm. rootlessness. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe disingenuousness. Um, yeah. Okay. Wild mm. stuff, guys. I think I think we're about at our time. Do you guys want to wrap up, or do you have any other party? You have any other bombshells to drop, Jeff? Because I did not see the no, Rousseau no, thing no, coming. I, 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 no, I'm, I'm glad I could surprise yeah. you, but I am was, out of ideas now. Oh, so uh, that, come hear my lecture. Come hear the lecture. <laughs> exactly. It's all a teaser for the lecture. It'll be exactly anyway. the same. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thanks a ton. Um, appreciate it. And uh, I actually forget what we have next. <laughs> I want to plug it, but I yeah. is it Freud? I think it is Freud. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. No idea. <laughs> I think it's Freud. We it, we totally we're, we're totally gonna we totally know what it is, and we've all read it, and we've got detailed notes about it. We just don't want to. We're just we're just toying with you. Big coy. Yeah, right. that's all. And or we don't know. Uh, <laughs> all right, so March second, uh, Friday night lecture with uh, Jeff Black at St. John's Annapolis. So you guys can check that out. And those are great, by the way. Like I, I, I loved. I didn't get to go to those a lot, but I, I loved going on the rare occasion I, I get to go. Actually, yeah. is this point of clarification, Jeff? Is this not you're coming to to us in Santa Fe, aren't you? I'm coming to you. Oh, yeah, the lecture oh. in Santa Fe. Yeah. Yeah. Seven thirty right. on Friday. Edit out all those Annapolis <laughs> and just do a voiceover that says Santa Fe. <laughs> um, do your best Brian impression. Um, so yeah, Santa Fe. Sorry about that. And then uh, what, what was the working title again? Machiavelli's Children. Oh yeah, no, that's the working title of my book. This uh, lecture is titled "We Shall Be Monsters: Frankenstein and the Ugliness of Science." Oh. Um, I, that's a good that's a good teaser it's uh, good it's good stuff <laughs> alright guys well thanks a ton and um, we'll see you next time thanks Brian thanks Jeff <laughs> yeah thanks Brian thanks Lise <laughs> <laughs>